Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, Paul Revere's and Miniman to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house Thursday, July 9th. Very busy week. A lot going on here. But before I get to the main course, I got to have a good laugh here. See, nothing better exemplifies the perfidy of this phony conservative movement, the phony Republican Party, than having the two Trump appointees at the Supreme Court. Oh, this was the creme de la creme. This was the key. This was the marquee of Trump's presidency, right? I mean, this is what we worked on forever. We're not going to militate against judicial supremacy, that the courts have a right to get involved in political issues and be the final say over the other two branches. No, we're going to agree to the game, but we'll get more conservative judges. Well, so they worked on that for years. And then at the time, we were like, dude, like, that's what you have. Neither of these people were on the list that Trump promised, by the way. And I'm like, dude, there, there's no evidence that they're good. And I have actually concerns about them. Well, Nothing exemplifies this better than Trump's own appointees siding with Roberts and the four Democrat appointees that a local DA could enforce a subpoena against the president of the United States to turn over his tax returns. Now, I don't have time. I don't want to spoil today's show because today we're really going to get into the math and data of Corona fascism and Corona lies. But the two really tie in because we have a phony movement where we don't have people who work in this movement that are actually good at what they do. So Trump relied on the Federalist Society to get good judges. But the problem is their values, my friends, are not our values. Just like the Heritage Foundation, have you seen any good data on corona fascism, on corona trends? Have you seen any good data on crime? On the issues of our time, they, they have a staff of 400. What do they do for a living? That scarce conservative money is gobbled up. Well, I'll tell you what they do. The president of that organization is working on uh, systemic racism. So it's the same thing with the Federalist Society. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are woke judges. They're like these new age, hip, phony conservatives. They're a reflection of the party. And the party is the problem. So we're not going to get into the nitty gritty of it. Mark Levin will talk about it tonight, I know. Um, obviously, Thomas and Alito had the constitutional view on this. And then, of course, there was another case where it was only Gorsuch, not even Roberts, but Gorsuch joined with the left. So Gorsuch always sides with criminal defendants, just so you know. So there was a sex offender who was part of the Creek Indian tribe in Oklahoma and basically, the courts overrode the state courts, the federal courts overrode the state courts to go ahead and convict, or I'm sorry, to toss a conviction because they said this guy's part of an autonomous Indian Creek, um, Creek Indian nation. And basically, in order to arrive at that conclusion, they had to say that Oklahoma doesn't exist. It's the land of the Creeks. It's unbelievable, Gorsuch's opinion. And he thinks he's so clever. You look at his writings like, yes, I don't know what a man and a woman is, you know? A man's a, a, a sex in Title VII of the, of the Civil Rights Act? I don't know. I think it might mean trannies. I, I don't know. Like, that's what he is, like that Amelia Bedelia game. So he played the same thing here. I mean, I'm just laughing because I told you guys this. I was the only one who was willing to do that. But I think this is a good transition to our main topic and our guest today about the distortion, the, ma the manipulation of math being the key to understanding the false COVID panic. And what's interesting is 
you had, and I'm going to tie the two issues together. You had, I remember, when Gorsuch was nominated, the first seven supposed conservatives on Twitter said this is the best guy since sliced bread. Now, mind you, no one ever heard of the guy. But whatever, he was the best thing. So then after that, everyone was like, yes, Gorsuch, Gorsuch! And, and, and like, Trump was screwing us on other issues as conservatives at the time, but that was the punchline to ameliorate the pig. Like, but Gorsuch! It became uh, actually a, a rhetorical expression. Uh, but Gorsuch! And it was funny, like, there was no evidence that he was good, and there was evidence that he was bad, and I pointed it out at the time. So a similar concept. There's something called the Ash Conformity Test. And basically, you had this professor in the 50s that had did a social study where he had a card with a line on it and then lines A, B, and C. And one of them was the same distance as that, as that uh, test line, and two were different lengths. And he stacked the audience with a number of people, like seven guys um, who were in on the trick, to say the wrong one. With the, like which line matched up, they would say the wrong one. Now you you cannot miss this. No common sense person could miss this. But nonetheless, he showed that that eighth person who was not in on it, once the seven guys said this, well, the eighth guy would say the wrong thing. And my friends, that's what's happening with Corona fascism. Nobody in their right mind would have ever said medical community or the non medical community that you could lock down people from a respiratory virus and somehow stop it, that somehow this is deadlier, like like as deadly as Ebola, and, and when we could stop it, and if we don't, we're all going to die. But that's what happens when you have nobody going through the data, going through the continuity of observations of geography from day one, and you leave it to a few people manipulating it, you manipulate, you manipulate the data, you manipulate the math, you're going to control the narrative. I mentioned before when I had Kyle Lamb on the show that there's a group of mathematicians, scientists, and just smart guys that got together and they said, look, you know, we, we, need, to, um, we need to get, a, get ahead of this and put out good information on Twitter. Good information, and by the way, there's there's other stuff that's going on with this. There's some really good things that are going to come out of this group. One of the these guys is Nathan Hyatt. Now, I'm sure you never heard of him, but that's the point. He has a degree in math. He's a high school math teacher. He's a, He was a former football coach in school and a firearms instructor. In other words, salt-of-the-earth American, everyday American. But he understands math. And I've said before that someone who understands math and has actually observed the trends from day one will be much smarter on this issue than any guy with a medical or scientific degree that has not closely followed this but thinks he he knows everything about this. So we're going to have a very good presentation. What is going on? What are the important trends? Where are the tricks? And how to ensure you don't fall for the COVID panic. With no further ado... It's an honor to welcome Nathan Hyatt for the first time to the Conservative Review. Hey, Nathan, thanks for joining us today. Daniel, it's, it's an honor to be on your show. And look, I got to have you back another time to give us some advice on firearms. You're a firearms instructor, really uh, um, decorated marksman. A lot of interesting things about you since we've become friends. But I want you guys to follow Nathan I don't know why these dudes have these funny Twitter names, but it's Wyatt Sheepy. So W-Y-A-T-T-S-H-E-E-P-I-E. I'm on Twitter. You could see his his analysis, his graphics. All right, Nathan. That's that's because of my dog, Daniel. That's my dog. Just to let you know, that's the history of <laughs> my funny name. It just makes it hard for Twitter. audio when I don't have my video component to put up the Twitter name, but you got to follow the, follow him. So Nathan, I want you want you to start off with the following. Most people are seeing scary trends where hospital not just cases but hospitalizations are surging even deaths are going up to a certain extent from where they were you know two three weeks ago in some places hey i mean this is scary don't we need to lock down now i know there's a lot of loaded premises there so could you give it give us just the foundational level of how to interpret the data in general before we get into the specifics yeah so let's just Let's just go back and just talk about math for a second in general, Daniel. 
there, there is so much math out there and there's so much data out there. It's important to select the right pieces and be able to analyze those. Okay. So you, you can find data on anything right now. Right? And, and, and that's good, but it's also bad because it can confuse the issue. Correct. So the definitions are the key to that. It's how you define things. Okay. How do they define a death? How do they define a hospitalization? How do they define a case? So just for example, I'll take everybody back to their high school geometry class. And, you know, Daniel, I'll, I'll pose this question to you. A, a line is straight, correct? Yep. Okay. Well, that's, it's straight in the Euclidean geometry that you were taught. There's, sphere, there's spherical geometry where lines are actually great circles. So that's why the definitions and the assumptions are so important. So I, with, with that said, I, I think, and, and that's very important, isn't it even more important in the case of a coronavirus? Because, like, let's say you have something like Ebola, which is rare, not that transmissible, but very deadly, you know, like a 30%, maybe 40% infection fatality rate. So there, more or less, it's kind of black and white, you know, who gets it, who dies from it. But when you have something that spreads literally like an epidemic flu, where in an epidemic flu year, you can get up to 80 million people getting it. And, you know, you'll have 80, 100,000 people get it, which, you know, we're, we're closer to 130,000 people, but we think it's more, if you look at the people who actually died from it, it's probably closer, at, at least at this point, to the 80, 90,000 level or so. So isn't that more important now that it's like so murky because for most people, it's asymptomatic. Most other people, it's relatively mild, even less than a typical annual, like, you know, real terrible cold and, and flu. Other people do get the flu. Other people get, you know, a pneumonia type and, the, you know, really small tranche are very serious. And you want to make sure you have good treatment for those. But if you have a pyramid like that, doesn't that throw everything off? Because everything's COVID, but a very small amount is serious. Right. So let's go back to that definition question again. Right. The definition of a COVID death is anybody who tests positive for COVID. And that's a big difference. There's a big difference between being positive for COVID and dying from COVID. Right. It's a big difference. Right. So you, you could be in your car. You're COVID positive. You get ran over by a train. You're now a COVID death. So that's very important to look at how they do the definitions. And I'm not aware of any other disease where they calculate that. You know, hey, you've got the flu, you, you know, you die in a plane accident, now you're a flu death. They don't do that there. So that definition of what a COVID death is is so important. And, and you know what I, what I think is so funny here is that if you go back to the 2018 flu season, which, by the way, nobody outside of – you know, us nerds that are focusing on this ever heard of it, just like they never heard of the 1957 and 1968 flu seasons, even when they lived through it. Um, my, my dad never, never heard of it. And, you know, but, but, but let's say had we gone back then and you don't want to call it the flu because it's all psychology. You know, everyone knows that they're not scared of it because you live with it. But let's say in 2018, we would have called it, you know, some sort of funky name that sounds really scary, the Kung flu. And, you know, it's going to get you. And let's say we would have created a national obsession of testing for it, like like just like animalistically, just obsessing about it. A test every last thing, shut down every last thing. The shutdown itself becomes a confirmation bias of the severity because look, we're doing, we're going through such great lengths to to do this, so it must be serious. Again, you call it a different name, so in the psychology of what you know, what people think, um, it would have been. Really, really terrible. Um, and, you know, we could have gotten away with doing that. Um, one of our friends, he's uh, El Gato Malo, another funny name on Twitter. He has an amazing Twitter thread yesterday. Or I'm sorry, actually, no, it's Justin Hart. And Justin, we've had on the show before, had an amazing Twitter thread of all of the stories in the media that you had about you know, hospitals that were overrun. They're like, we can't take any more. We're overrun. And they were all true to some level. They, they were true. Um, you know, t 
Helia says his hospital is managing, but just barely at keeping up with the increased number of sick patients in the last three weeks. The hospital's urgent care centers have also been inundated and outpatient clinics have no appointments available. Um, he has great quotes from here. And, you know, severe hospitals have uh, set up large surge tents outside their ERs to accommodate and treat patients. Even then, the LA Times reported this week emergency departments had standing room only and some patients had to be treated in hallways. And the, the, the point is, the government never ran with it outside of the medical community. Nobody knew about it. You could find it if you're a, con- a consumer of news like we are, but it wasn't a saturation level that your average layman would have heard it. Um, it wasn't incessant enough in the news cycle, but we could have easily done that. And the more we would have tested, the more it would have become an institution. The more it becomes an institution, the more we would have had regular deaths. Now, let me, I'm getting to my punchline here. I want you to explain the mathematical side, not the scientific side, but the mathematical side to this. Isn't it true that we have roughly 60,000 deaths every week all the time? People die of everything from heart stroke to tragic accidents and drug overdoses and whatever they are. So you got that 60,000 every week. Now, if you have an epidemic flu, whether it's 2018, whether it's this and you have, at any given point, 10 to 15% of the population could have it, isn't it true that even if the fatality rate is zero, and I'm not saying it is, it's not zero, there are some people legitimately dying from it now, but it is very low, but even if it's zero, the way we are obsessing to discover who has it and then counting them as deaths, you will never, until it's eradicated, you will never have zero deaths, you will always have you could have any given week um, 10 to 15% of 60,000 being COVID or flu deaths. Well, what you're doing is, I think this is very important, Daniel. What you're doing is you're putting context to the numbers, right? Um, and that's what Justin was doing with his flu tweet, right? No, nobody, nobody understands that the hospitals get overrun during flu season. It's not uncommon for that to happen. So we have to have context, right? So yeah, so to go back to your question, we test everybody that goes into a hospital right now, right? These people get tested multiple times. So if the math definition is going to be anybody who is COVID positive that dies is going to be a COVID death, whether the COVID killed them or not, you're never going to get the mortality down to zero. You know, it's one of the things where I think of, and I start looking at the numbers, you know, everybody keeps going, well, why aren't deaths going to go down anymore? Why aren't deaths going down anymore? Why aren't deaths going down anymore? What's the way we collect the data? It's the math behind it. If you're positive, you're a COVID death. Daniel, it's a virus. You can't stop the spread of it, right? You're not going to, it's going to be there. So if a person comes in and dies, you test them, boom, they're positive. It's a COVID death. The virus is going to be there. There's going to be a portion of society that's always going to have it. There's going to be a portion of society, right, at least for right now, who are going to have it when they die, whether they died from it or whether they don't die from it. But they're going to be listed as a COVID death, right? So your, your, your death numbers, the way we're doing it, are never going to go, real, you know, go down to zero, as you were talking about, or trend to the, what, 20 a week or whatever it is. It's just going to be a mathematical impossibility by the way we collect and define the data. But, but could, could you give us some numbers here? So if you look at Texas, you know, they've been averaging like 200 COVID deaths a week or so, 200, 250. But I'm thinking like if you look at the number of people that would die in a state like Texas in any given week, okay, and you take the fact that they're getting over 10% positivity rate among those that are testing, they're testing positive, so what I don't understand is, and, and then, you know, a good number of people die in hospitals, whether it's cancer, heart, trauma, and we're testing every organism that goes into a hospital. So what I don't understand is if you started testing, how many people die with a cold? Okay. Now, again, I'm not saying this, you know, this is, you know, we don't have to do anything under the sun because this is just like the cold because you do have a cohort that can and do get it definitely worse than that but for the overwhelming number of people it's either less than a cold it's asymptomatic or 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 like a cold 
So it's that common, but we never trace a cold. Here we're tracing it. So what I don't understand is, is like even if nobody dies, until this is eradicated, aren't you always going to have at least, I, and again, I don't have the numbers at the top of my head, but like 100 weekly COVID deaths in, in uh, Texas just by the function of them dying with COVID. Well, let's just go back to the nation as a whole because you said, you know, I think right now we're like at that 50,000 deaths a week number, right? So uh, as a country, we're seeing about what, about a 5% positivity rate as a country, correct? So if you just apply that 5% positivity rate to the 50,000, that's 2,500 deaths a week right there. That's 2,500 COVID deaths a week. Now you could say, well, you know, maybe that number goes down or whatnot. So I mean, let, let's say the positivity rate goes down to 1%. Well, that's still going to be 500 deaths a week. So our definitions have created what I would call a floor. There's going to be a floor where the deaths can't go below it. Everybody wants to see the deaths go to zero, right? Daniel, that's the big cop. That's the big holler, right? We can't have any deaths. We can't have any of this. Well, the terms have been defined where that's going to be mathematically impossible. I mean, even if you took the positivity rate, like I said, down to 1% nationwide, you're still going to have 500 deaths a week nationwide. No, exactly. And, and, and my contention, and I, I, I expressed this to you when we spoke yesterday, it was an epiphany I had. I said, wait a minute. The more this becomes likely both more contagious and less deadly, just like a typical flu, really even a cold. So the more you're going to have that gap between the legitimate COVID deaths and the fake COVID deaths, because it's going to become more rampant and less deadly. So less likely they died from it, but more likely you have it. And people die every day, a good number in a country this large. So a good percentage are going to have it. And that's my concern about the math of this and the definitions. So could you take this to the level below, we, to the hospitalization and the cases, and maybe use, I know you got a lot of good stuff on Ohio. Ohio is one of the states now they're talking about, oh, there's a lot going on. You have Governor DeWino complaining about it, and we need more lockdown because it's getting bad there. What's happening in a state like Ohio? Well, I think the two that we might want to talk about, which, you know, there's some interesting data, Daniel, is Ohio and then, of course, Arizona, right? And Arizona is a hotbed. So, so let's, go, let's go back once again to the definition. What is a hospitalization? Well, a hospitalization is anybody who comes in who is positive. And they test everybody coming in. And I know, Daniel, when you and I talked, you had talked about an article where it didn't an ER doctor in Miami say they test everybody that's coming in and like a third of the people coming in are testing positive, you know, it was some really high number, whether you were coming in for a car accident or, right, you, you cut your hand and you needed stitches, right? We had this obscenely high number, you know, that were coming in. So if that's going to be your definition and you're going to test everybody, and you got to remember back in March and April and parts of May, we weren't testing everybody that's going into the hospital. So our testing pool has gone from, those who just have what we call CLI, COVID-like illness, to testing everybody. So if you want to talk about hospitalizations in Ohio, there's, there's some interesting numbers in Ohio when you start digging into their hospitalizations. One of the things you will see in Ohio is people will test positive for um, COVID on May 15th but their hospitalization was, let's say, April 1st. So they're testing positive after they've been in the hospital and after they were in the hospital weeks ago. So that's, that's an interesting question, right? The definitions matter. So how are you defining it? The data appears to show that what they're doing is they're defining it, Daniel, is if you test positive and you were in the hospital at any time this year, boom, you're a hospitalization. Wait, even if you were discharged or you're still there, but you were there a while ago? Well, that's the question that nobody's answering in the state of Ohio or in definitions. I mean, some of them, and you, you, you mentioned Kyle. Kyle and I have looked at some of these. You know, some of these are 
you know, we're talking about the, they were in the hospital and it's six, seven, eight, nine weeks later, they're testing positive for COVID and other positive COVID hospitalization. Obviously, they weren't there for COVID, right? I mean, <laughs> just the math adds up. It doesn't take eight, nine, 10 weeks to get a test back, no matter what the media tells you. That just doesn't take that long. And the other thing that we found to be very interesting is there was like a huge range on their hospitalizations. There was a big percentage of people who tested positive for COVID. And I believe the national average is you're most people like 80, 90% of people are in the hospital after 17 days. Kyle's kind of our expert on, on tracking those numbers, but there are people who are going into the hospital 31, 40, 50, 60 days after testing positive for COVID. It just, it just, it makes you question what's the definitions and what's the assumptions that they're making. And these are questions that, you know, reporters don't ask. They just take the data and they look at it. And it's, it's questions that the state doesn't want to talk about. Another interesting point here is that, so not only do you have an extremely common and as a percentage of cases, very low death rate, a type of virus, but then you have the virus engendering, well, not it's not the virus engendering it, but it's it's the panic porn engendering the politicians to then create policies that will not not, not only are you gonna have the normal fifty thousand deaths a week, but you're gonna then have excess deaths from the lockdown that we always talk about. And then the irony is those people are going to test positive, too. So not only are you going to have the baseline pool of people that are going to test positive, even though COVID is not killing them, and it's to be counted as a COVID death, but you're going to have the excess deaths induced by the lockdown, and they're going to take a bite out of those and call them COVID deaths, too. So talk about you did some data on Ohio, I saw some other states maybe with drug overdose deaths that people are locked at home, people are depressed, they're, people lost their jobs, they turn to alcohol and drugs. So you're going to have all these people come into the hospital with drug overdoses now. Hey, let's test them. And okay, you know, 5-10% will have COVID. Hey, we got some more COVID cases here. Right, so we're seeing spikes in overdoses across the country. Right now. And, 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 you know, in Ohio, we, we, you know, like we know we have some counties that have the highest um, fatalities, fatalities per capita, you know, when it comes to drug overdoses. So, so we have a rampant uh, issue here. You know, you, you look at Cincinnati, you look at Dayton, you look at Columbus, you look at Cleveland, you know, Cincinnati, you know, some of these places are reporting seven, eight, nine drug overdoses a weekend, Daniel. You know, these are these are these are big numbers that we're seeing spiking for it. Now, the most interesting thing was, Daniel, I, I read an article on a Cincinnati paper that was trying to blame opening up too soon on the drug overdoses, which I, I just don't know how you can mathematically <laughs> connect those dots. But they were saying since we opened up too soon, that was causing people to, to spike. I mean, listen, you, know, you just think about it like logically, right? Anxiety is going to go up. I mean, I think everybody's more anxious right now than they were, what, four months ago, five months ago. Um, that's going to lead to, to, to these spikes in overdoses. And here's the other dirty secret, Daniel, that I know you and I have talked about a little bit, is the murder rates started going up at the end of March and April. Also, in a lot of these big cities. Yep. And, and, and your point with that is, if you follow the trend line there, it's not just the rioting. You know, everyone's – I think most people are on to the fact that the rioting and the breakdown in law and order, the war on the cops is causing a spike in crime. But as I noted, that actually we, – we had a pre-existing condition there of jailbreak where we released all these criminals and then really accelerated that with COVID jailbreak. Um, as of – at some point, it was 70,000 according to UCLA – that were broken out and those are career criminals. And so, so again, you, you, like drug deaths, crime, so many effects of not the virus, but the reaction to it. Um, oh, everyone's going to die in prison, even though like the fatality rate was so low. So we have to, we have to let them go. 
Um, so, and that's the other thing. We never consider the data on the collateral damage. It's only one direction. Right. So, can, can, we yeah. back to, can we get back to Arizona quick hospitalization? Because I think I got some interesting numbers that people will find fascinating. Oh, wow. Quick. Okay. You know, so l- l- let's look at Arizona. And I'm going to go to June 28th because Arizona actually does a CLI report, that COVID-like illness report, where they basically what the computer program does, Daniel, is it's looking for certain codes that the, that the doctors have put into the hospital computer systems and keywords. And what this program does is it figures out, okay, how many of our patients are inpatients are actually being treated for COVID-like illness, okay? And, and they're the only state that really does a good job of this. But if you go to June 28th, Arizona had 6,445 inpatients at that point in time. Arizona said 27, 2,721 of them were COVID positive. Now, here's what's interesting. On June 28th, they said of their 6,445 patients, 15.9% of them were being treated for a COVID-like illness. Well, if you take that percentage, that means 1,024 of the patients were being treated for covid but the hospital says they have 2,721 COVID-positive patients, meaning 60% of the COVID-positive patients, over 60% of them, weren't even being treated for COVID. In, in other words, you, you have a degree in math, but you don't need a degree in math to understand what you just said. You're doing simple arithmetic. See, all these guys want to do panic porn and all these doctors, they think they know so much, but we're just taking apart the simple data. And I I think what you're doing is saying, and we're going to go, speaking of Arizona, we'll move on to the border in a minute about anomalies and data that tell a story that's more powerful than any scientific theory, true or not. But you're saying that this definition that we're talking about, hospitalized because of COVID, with COVID, they actually break that out in a backhanded way because, like, you could come – see, COVID-like symptoms are very broad. It could range from, I have a sore throat. Well, that could mean you don't have COVID, but you, that's that's defined now as COVID-like symptoms. Or you do have it, but that's all you have, and whoop de doo I mean, I get a sore throat every computer- six weeks. You know, the computers, Daniel, have a threshold. So they are looking for keywords. And, and so the computers actually do go through upgrades um, periodically. And they, they do have a threshold for this. So, they, so you're right. They, they, they might not be they might be flagging some people who have a COVID like illness that don't truly have COVID. But it is it is a pretty sophisticated scenario. Um, with that now, but I'll tell you what's interesting also, no, no, but, is, but, but Nathan, Nathan, I was told in, in Florida, at least that it's cough, fever, sore throat and trouble or trouble breathing. But, but, but th- that, that's a very, th- that's a very big gap because, you know, you and I have the, have all the symptoms all the time, multiple times a year. I at least do the trouble breathing. I've never had in my if life. You have young, if, you, if you have young kids, you have that like three months of the year, right? Yeah. Every, every three months. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, and you, by the way, never eat your kids leftovers. I mean, that's, that's just the, the worst, but, um, or drink from the cups. But what I'm saying is, you know, to me, the biggest concern from a public policy standpoint and from a metric of how disruptive and harmful is a spread of a virus, to me, the 800-pound gorilla in the room is acute um, respiratory distress syndrome. That's the that's what you saw in New York and New Jersey in large numbers, other places in small numbers in March and April. That's what I'm trying to figure out. How many, like my uncle... He was never in an ICU, but he was in pretty bad shape, and it took a while. He had hydroxychloroquine, you know. He was in, and thank God he got better. But he, but that was bad. I mean, he will tell you that was the sickest he's ever been. He had trouble breathing. That was a severe pneumonia. It, it attacked his lungs. That's what you don't want to see in large numbers. So what you're telling me is that even at a treatment level, it's only what what was it forty percent. Who are being treated? Positive, yeah. Who, who are being treated in Arizona? And, and even those forty percent, I'd venture to say, you know, 
most of those probably weren't having trouble breathing, but because the hospitals have been giving hundreds of billions of dollars, we're all testing these treatments. So they try it out on people. They have a fever, they have whatever. But but that's a very different story than than ARDS. And I'm assuming we don't have data breaking that out. No, we we don't right now. And that's, you know, that, that's the heart of the question. And, you know, going back to Arizona at AJK, she, one of our, you know, data people, you know, she just posted yesterday, you know, some fascinating data on Arizona. And, and then the question becomes is, Daniel, how are they manipulating the data? You know, how are they changing the definitions, which gives you a different picture? So like, for example, she, I thought her, I thought her data was just so fascinating from the standpoint of, as of yesterday, Arizona had 5,272 hospitalized COVID patients total since this thing started, right? But according to them, they have 12, over 12,800 discharges. Huh. Are we double counting people? Or, right? That math just doesn't I, that add just up. Doesn't right? add up yeah. so, so, you know, that, that makes you start to question, like, okay, they say they have 3,400 COVID positive hospitalizations. But when I see this discharge number, it makes me wonder, what else have they done to the definition? Are, are they taking yep. ER visits into account now? Normally, they don't, right? They're not supposed to. But, but what's happening there? And, and those are questions that reporters don't ask, right? And it's information the state doesn't throw out there will, willingly. And these are critical questions to really understand the scope of the problem. It's shocking that we don't have this because, again, this is the baseline problem here that for most there's a small amount and it seemed to be mainly in certain areas in March and April where it was like, you know, really attacked people's lungs. And that that was really serious. And then, you you know, people died from it. Um, But then, I mean, mixed in with it is the 99 percent that's like either asymptomatic or a cold, or at worst, a flu, where nobody, unless they're in a very fragile state of being, ever dreams of going to an ER, ever dreams of going to the hospital. Often, you know, people like us, you know, you're younger, you're healthier. I wouldn't even go to the internist um, well, for, for things like that. Back, and going back to your hospitalizations, too, real quick, and, you know, this, I think people will find this to be fascinating, but one of the problems, things that we're doing here in Ohio, and because you, know, you mentioned, right, in New York, and it, it, this is a long-term care facility death issue, right? I mean, that, they know that's what the data tells us, right? That's where the yeah. issues are. So, you know, a lot of states don't have a solution to it. So what's the solution? We, put, we keep them in the hospital until they get two negative tests. Well, you know, that means what that could mean is, and, and, and is you could have a person come from a long-term care facility, God forbid, they break their hip, they're asymptomatic positive, Right. Well, now they're in the hospital for 14, 16, 17, 18 days while they're waiting to get two negatives back to back. So their hospital stays are getting longer and longer and longer and longer, potentially. In other words, it's amazing our reaction to covid, both in terms of the fear, the restrictions, the obsessive testing is engendering it. In in other words, we're trying to say that likely 50 million people have gotten this and it could go to 80 million people. I mean, if, if it's like the, you know, an epidemic flu, imagine if everyone who got a certain threshold of symptoms would go to the hospital on a given year, you, you would be flooded, but is it that serious? No, but what you don't know can hurt you. So, you know, you don't naturally go. Meaning what I would love to know is minus the panic porn. What is the threshold that, that people of hospitalization that people would go on their own volition right now. I can't blame people. I can't blame you. If you, you know, you test positive and you develop some sort of a fever, nothing indicating that you're going to be in trouble with a pneumonia, trouble breathing, but I can't blame it. Like, Hey, I mean, this shut down the world. I got it. I got symptoms. You're going to, you're going to go to the ER now on a typical flu season. That doesn't happen. Normal people don't do that with the exception of just those that, that, you know, you have illegal aliens or other people that don't have physicians and they use the ERs as primary care. Um, but typically you only go if you really feel like you have something serious that 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 you're like, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. I'm having trouble breathing. It's pneumonia. Um, and, and that's my concern. And I think what you're pulling out of Arizona really seems to show that from the discharge data, 
from the number you know of COVID patients, but then how many were actually treated. So that's good stuff. We're running out of time. Could you bring this, take this data discussion to the border? So you approach things from math. You don't know that much about border politics. That's my side of the equation. So I'm always suspicious. But what pikes your interest, which would pike anyone's interest, is when you start seeing data anomalies. Could you discuss the insanity that we are seeing in the border data? Yeah, the, the border data is very interesting. So everybody wants to, I think Daniel will agree, everybody wants to blame the opening up for what's going on and the rising cases and everything in Texas, right? That, that's the blame, right? That's the blame. So what we find out here is let's just look, let's just look at our cases, right? Our cases per 1,000 residents. So we're talking about Harris County here. That's Houston. We've heard that Houston has issues, right? Looking at from, I believe it's June 1st to July the 2nd, case growth per 1,000 residents grew 167% in Houston. If we go to Hildago County down on the border, case growths per 1,000 residents, 641%. Wow. That is so. That's six. That's six forty-one, six hundred forty-one percent to one hundred and sixty-seven percent. That's a, that's a big difference. You know that that's a big difference. Um, if we look at hospitalizations, June first to July third, Hildago COVID hospitalizations are up one thousand one hundred and thirty-one percent. The rest of the state is up 337%. Um, if we look at the hospitalization rate, and I know uh, this, this, well, let's look, at, let's look at the hospitalizations, right? Hildago County, the RG, and let's talk about Rio Grande Valley. So we're talking about, what is this, Daniel? We're talking about Cameron. We're talking about Star. We're talking about Hildago, right? Those are our three counties. Yeah, and Hidalgo is the, the, the biggest one with the biggest points of entry, um, that's a sister city of Reynosa there. So that's where you're going to have the most cross traffic from places like Roma and McAllen, um, and mission. Okay. So, so we're looking at, and Texas puts their hospitals in regions. So we're talking about region V down there, those three counties, those three counties have 12% of the COVID positive hospitalizations in Texas, but they have 4% of the population. Three to one ratio there. So, um, yeah, yeah. Now, and this is the most interesting thing right now. So, so what I do is I take a look at the active cases in those three counties, okay? And I know you and I discussed this yesterday. And, and the active cases, Daniel, we have to remember those are an estimate. So it's not exact. So if we got numbers that were close, we could say, eh, it just might be an estimation error. But what I did was I looked at the number of active cases in the, the Rio Grande Valley, the RGV. It's about 4,080. They got over, they're, they're approaching 1,200 hospitalizations, which would put their hospitalization rate at 29%. Now, meaning, meaning wait, 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 29% um, relative to the, case, the, the, of the high cases, of cases. Right, is in the hospital. Which is insanely high. Right. So I, I think it was uh, Kyle Lamb told me, I asked him this, and I think it was June 22nd or June 28th, he said it was 5.8% for the country. 5.8% so, you know, for the country, and, and this is yeah. 29. Yeah, so like I said, these active cases, right, Daniel, they're estimates, right? So if we saw like 58 and 8%, maybe we could just sit there and say, yeah, you know. But when we start seeing 6% to 30%, right, it, it, it makes you pause, right? And I know you and I have some theories about that, but it makes you pause. Like, why is that data so different there? than in the rest of the country. Well, so explain numerators and denominators. Explain, explain the fractions to our audience. Okay. Um, what, what would automatically cause such a funneling effect of okay, such so, high numbers of hospitalizations? Okay, so numerator, that's the top number, right? The denominator, that's the bottom number, okay? So... It's hard. 
I, I think the hospital systems are going to be sophisticated enough that when they say, hey, there's 1,181 patients, which I believe that's what Hildago County is right now hospitalized, that's going to be a pretty accurate number, Daniel. I think we both agree on that, right? That's going to be a pretty accurate yep. number. Now, the smaller I make the active cases, the higher my percentage is going to be. Right? If I take 1,181 and I divide it by 2,000, and comparing that to making my denominator bigger, if I took 1181 and divided it by 2 million, my percentage is going to get much smaller, correct? So it, it, once again, going back to our definitions and the tricks of the trade that they use, I know this is where you and I have questions. How are they getting the denominator, right? They say that in their counties, their county numbers, those are only positive residents. So do the positive residents of the RGV have the worst strand of COVID ever? <laughs> or do we have non-residents of those counties coming <laughs> up and in, and they're putting huge numbers in the hospital? In other words, like this, Hidalgo, like every other county, has co- a pile of COVID people that don't need to go to the hospital or don't want to, and a pile of people who do. But then in addition to that, they have Tamalipas, but they but they only have the pile of Tamalipas cases that go to the hospital. Obviously not the ones that don't. They don't come to just get tested and say, hey, goodbye. Um, they come because they're in serious trouble, as you know, New York Times, Washington Post, Reuters, Wall Street Journal, several local articles, all all talked about openly that they were coming to the border for that. Um, and there you have it because there's no way you could have one County that is a five times um, higher hospitalization to case ratio, because that would be, that would mean like they have some, like some deadlier strain or something. It's that by definition, they're getting the most serious people from Reynosa. Um, there are stories in the media there that the hospitals like, Evidently, they sedate everyone who comes in there. I mean, it's bad. It's really bad. I, I can't blame someone for not wanting to go to a hospital in Mexico and for coming here. I get it. But, dude, you got to be transparent. I mean, there's no way that is not coming from there based on what we know. Um, what I found, you know, the reason why I know you're right is because um, Kaiser Health News p- reported this in May already. Because Baja, California, the western part of Mexico, got hit earlier than Tamaulipas, the eastern part. So therefore, California dealt with the cross-border stuff earlier than Texas did. And they were talking about how Imperial County, California, had a two and a half times greater hospitalization rate. It wasn't rate to cases. It was rate per capita of just a people than L.A. County when Imperial County is... Um, 157th the population and something like 169th the population density. Um, and, and I just bring that in because usually it spreads quicker the denser you are. So it just it just like makes no it makes no sense. But there they said blatantly, I mean, they had the hospital CEOs were on record. Texas, they're not really on record. Um, but but there in, in California, they just said, yeah, we're, we're getting them from the border. We bring them in um, and that's it. Um I I wanted to share with our listeners while I have you on because I haven't done this before and it's going to be an article today, but I do want to get your comment. But before we sew this up, I just want to tell our listeners, I did some research on New Mexico and it is astounding because New Mexico is the ultimate control group. We have four border states. Three of them are experiencing this surge. Now, as we've talked about, it's, it's a lot of it's superficial and illusory because of the definitions, but there are serious cases and some increased deaths that are coming from the border, clearly coming from Mexico. But you have one state that doesn't have a problem, and that's New Mexico. New Mexico has very few deaths. They don't have a surge in June. They don't have a surge in hospitalizations. They don't have the problem. Now, New Mexico has three border counties. Two of them are like there's almost no civilization. And one, there's only one really with, uh, that's Doña Anya, that's uh, Las Cruces, and, you know, that th- that's a border county, and yet, there's nothing new in there. And the reason, and if you didn't know the border geography, you wouldn't know why, but I know. 
They have just 11 deaths in Donia County. 11 deaths, and there's no spike. There's no trend going up. The trend's going down, like every other, like most other parts of the country in terms of at least deaths, if not cases, but deaths, hospitalizations. And here's the deal. They don't have that cross-border culture because it's a desert. There's nothing. There's no even small town in Mex- on the Mexican side. There's nothing. So there's nowhere for Mexicans. If you're a Mexican choking and you have a serious case of acute respiratory distress syndrome, yeah, there's nowhere to go. You're going to go, if, if you're in Juarez, you go to El Paso. You have, that. that's the sister city. Laredo, you have Nuevo Laredo. McAllen, you have Reynosa. Um, Brownsville, you have Matamoros. In California, the greater San Diego, uh, um, Vista Chula, um, Imper- Imperial, uh, Imperial Beach, you have Tijuana. That's a big one. That's the biggest crossing. In uh, El Centro, California, you got Mexicali. Yuma, Arizona, you got San Luis. Douglas, Arizona, you got uh, Agua Pierta. Um, uh, what's that place? Um, Nogales. You got Nogales, Mexico. There's all sister cities. So A, you have the Mexicans coming over for treatment. And B, you have the Americans that go there to shop. The cheaper prices, family, the sister city status. They, they're going there every day. Like you and I would go to another, you know, from Dayton, Ohio to, to Cincinnati. They, that, that's what they do. But we never shut off travel and mandated quarantine like we did elsewhere when they got hot. So that's why they brought it in. That's why in Douglas, Arizona, Cochise County, it's 35% Hispanic. But 72% of the cases are Hispanic. That makes no sense if it's naturally from the county. It's got to be coming from the border. Yet you go to New Mexico, there is no cross-border culture and there would be no Mexicans coming in there. They just don't. Historically, they don't, there's nowhere to go. So therefore, yeah, so I just want to finish the punchline. Here's math for you, and then I want to get your comment. El Paso has 10 times more deaths than Dunyana County, even though it's only three times larger. Cameron County, that's Brownsville, has seven times more deaths, even though it's only twice the size. Cochise County is half the size of Dunyana, has double the deaths. Yuma County is about the same size, almost exactly, and it has 11 times greater deaths in Yuma, where we know they were shipping them in. That's, a, that's insane. Well, if let's, go to your, let's go back to Hildago, right? And let's talk about deaths there for a second to kind of go back to your theory, because, Daniel, I think you believe that the default is always it's the reopening that's causing the deaths, right? That's always the default mechanism. Yep. So if we go to Hildago, from the start of this, through June 23rd, they had 23 deaths. Now, Daniel, I believe Texas started reopening on May 1st. Yep. From May 15th to June 15th, you want to guess how many deaths Hildago had? Three. Zero. Holy smokes. What okay, the heck? So those, so, so those weeks, two through six, after wow. the reopening started, Hildago had zero deaths. Now, since June 23rd wow. through, today, through yesterday, they have 80 deaths. Whoa, 80 deaths. So they went three months with 23 the critical period, it actually went down after the reopening. And then they have 80 now. And now we know, obviously, I don't have my video component anymore, so I can't show people the graphic. But our buddy Phil Kirpin put out a nice chart. You see Mexico's peak when it got bad was right around June 1st. It's about three to four weeks where you're going to see that spike. And that's exactly when we're seeing it. Whereas the May 1st opening, you go to the three to four to five week um, six weeks six. duration. The there's zero deaths, zero yeah, so go, deaths during right, that so May, time. Right. You go May 15th. So that Jeez. would be the start of the third week. Right. And then you go through June 15th, which would be the, you wow. know, so you were talking about that reopening that three to six week window. They didn't have any deaths. Unbelievable. And, and you, see, you know, you were talking about the percentage of cases. Well, you, you know, we see these trends, you know, throughout the country. And I know you've talked about migrant workers and I know uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida 
you know, does a great job of it. But, you know, what was it? Nebraska, 59% of their known cases are Latino. What did you just say, 59? 59. Now, this is old. This is a couple And, weeks and ago. what percentage of they are, uh, are they of the population? Like single 11. digits? 11. Colorado, 22% of the demographic, 46 of the cases um you, you, you know you look at utah like i said i'm, I'm telling you, these are like seven to ten days old but you know utah 12 percent of the population 49 percent huron county up north in ohio right we're talking about ohio okay governor mike dewine on monday said seven out of ten cases in huron county are not latino well that means three out of ten are <laughs> right i mean I mean, maybe he's not that good at math. So, thirty percent are Latino. What, what 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 percent are they of the census? It's under six. Under six percent, but thirty percent of cases. So, I mean, like th- this is the important thing, folks. I want you to listen to Nathan and understand this. Nathan doesn't have a fancy bio here that I can introduce him. Oh, he's this epidemiologist or this that um, ER doctor or whatever or a specialist. But this is the thing. Like, I have these a hole specialists in my community. Like. I think I got well math and the place that they weren't careful. And like, hey, bozo, like Nathan is able to just pull this data. This tells the story. I mean, oh, nothing to see there. Yeah, it just happens to all be Hispanic. Oh, it just happened to be right at the period when Mexico peaked and the three week um, case to death duration b- b- spiked right then and then after the reopening they had zero deaths oh no uh, uh, th- th- these specialists have it all figured out they know it's come from hey, you don't do the social distancing like i mean they're such bozos i mean they're pathetic and like another thing is so listen to this these clowns are gonna say well daniel i'll tell you why new mexico was good because they have a nice liberal governor there and they had lockdown here's the deal axius posted yesterday the 50 state um, trend lines for social mobility of of the lockdowns. Arizona was in the top five severe lockdowns. Arizona had a much longer and uh, more severe drop in social mobility than New Mexico did. Not to mention the fact that California did get hit now from the surge from the border. And um, they had, I mean, to this day, LA County is shut all summer activities. I mean, LA County is like their animals there. The, these politicians, um, they have the most severe thing. Like there's this notion that Texas and Arizona are like red States, but they, they, the, the social mobility, especially in Arizona really dropped. And, and in California, they had a severe lockdown and, um, and have the problem. New Mexico doesn't have the problem, but actually had less of a social mobility drop than Arizona did. The common denominator is the damn border. They don't have places to cross. They never did. I followed the border for 15 years. I've done border reporting. They they only had even illegal immigration one time because the cartels ratted them there. But legal, certainly like the people coming with the you know dual citizens, the green cards, and the cross border shopping. There's no cross border. I mean, it is literally like the Mojave Desert. There is nothing there. There is no human crossing there. Um, it's deserted. That is what Arizona's counties would look like if you wouldn't have the Mexico factor. If Mexico would be like like Canada, a first world country, and you wouldn't have problems with uh, hospitalizations, that's what the rest of the border would have looked like. Look at New Mexico, and that's where it is. Any closing thoughts? Looks like you're, you're cutting out on me there, but uh, uh sorry, you know the overall clothing thought is is, is uh, to me is interesting how the media and everybody just looks at the math and they just accept it for what it is uh, without taking a good hard look at it. Um, and until we do that, until people understand what these statistics really mean and what the data is really telling us, we're going to be battling this COVID fear for a long time. Man, and that's the thing. So good luck in your work, folks. Again, you have to follow him at Wyatt Sheepy on Twitter. Um, if you like the data, he has visual charts where he really drives these points home. Um, a great follow on Twitter, great source of information, much more than these phony doctors and scientists that miss the most salient points. Because again, we are not studying theories about what the virus is going to do. Nobody really knows that. We are studying what has happened this is the hard data um of what has happened and it tells a story 
And if you miss that story, you don't know what you're talking about. So the next time you hear these clowns, point to this show and nail them on it. Send it to a hundred of your friends, relatives. I got to run. We are way out of time. Folks, follow me at armconservative on Twitter. dhorowitz at blazemedia.com is the email. And Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary is the Facebook page. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.